Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, and, and I'm, I switched over to the old King James Version today uh, for a particular reason. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. For, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. In love, five, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Seven, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the richness of his grace, wherein he hath uh, eight, where he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Nine, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. Ten, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Eleven in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Twelve, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. Thirteen, in whom you also trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with the holy, that Holy Spirit of promise, 14, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. And that's the word of the Lord, and he'll most certainly add his abundant blessing to the reading of his holy truth. It was the same portion that we read last week, as you know, uh, where I read it from my English Standard Version. And uh, as we approach, as we are in lesson 92 of the church history series, we're in the modern times, or what we would say, uh, what is called the postmodern age. And as you see there, um, oh, it's actually uh, your title should be postmodernism seven. Uh, oh yeah, it does. Yours, yours, ours actually says this: postmodernism seven. Dispensational theology. Here you are, brother. Here you are, brother. Sister. I mean, brother and sister. You didn't see the old switcheroo that they were doing over here. Trying to mess me up. Oh, wait a minute. There's Brother James. I should have gave him. Oh, you got one. Okay. So uh, as we see Rosie the Riveter there, in America in particular, the postmodern era really... uh, pushed forward as a reminder um, in 19, uh, when America joined in 1941, joined the war as World War uh, II. Women took uh, places of leadership and work in America while the men went off fighting in this other war. And from there, it changed. While already we had a change in the early 1900s from uh, with modernism, taking the Bible and liberalizing it. Oh, it's not really the word of God. It's kind of a word from God 
or or for some, it's just the word that's kind of good, but it's not really from God, and we need to make sense of it. That turned into, uh, the liberalism turned into relativism. Well, what's good for you might not be good for me. I'm okay, you're okay. And that's really what the postmodernism is. Absolute truth has gone out the window. We can do it. Uh, it elevates, uh, the postmodern period elevates human achievement above God's sovereignty. And I, and I want to stress, above God's sovereignty. Not equal to, above God's sovereignty. In fact, God isn't even sovereign. Man's sovereign. And I will mention this because we, uh, last week as I, we covered Reformed theology and as we went through it, you know, many people were thinking, well, Brother John, that kind of sounds like you. <laughs> There's an aspect of covenant theology that I didn't cover last week. It was, it's called replacement theology or dominion theology. In other words, that the church replaced Israel. I don't believe that. Um, though in many respects I, I have a reformed background, I don't believe the church has replaced Israel. I believe fulfillment theology. The church is what Israel was meant to be, Jews and Gentiles. Um, I'm, uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and then to the Greek. But the church is made up of ethnic Jews, and, and ethnic non-Jews. Um, even in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, to every kindred, tongue, tribe, and nation, which would not exclude ethnic Jews, it would include them. Um, do they? But dispensational theology presents um, a slightly different aspect to that. It uh, doesn't exclude Israel, and in fact it uh, exalts Israel in a, in a tremendous way. I am not a dispensationalist, but I understand where they're coming from. And that, like Reformed theology, as there are several layers, and even those that are not full, like me and myself, I'm not fully committed to covenant theology. However, I understand the covenants, and I believe God revealed himself through the covenants. Um, and in fact, dispensationalism, just as a precursor, it, uh, many will even consider it even many dispensationalists will consider their theology a really a form of covenant theology because they break up their their periods of time through those covenants. Um, but they don't want to call it covenantal dispensationalism because it sounds too close to covenant theology, which it's which it's not. And one of the things they do shy away from is the thing that I don't like about covenant theology is this replacement theology it uh, uh, for many reasons. And uh, I won't get into those. But I wanted to mention that. So what is dispensation? Oh, are there any questions from Reformed theology from last week? Okay, yeah, theology. That's When you say the word, people cringe. Oh, I don't want theology. It's about a relationship, not a religion. Well, yeah, no. Because James says, a pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to keep, himself, keep oneself unspotted by the world, or excuse me, to um, visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted by the world. Pure religion and undefiled. Um, 
It even uses that in the scriptures. So it's uh, that whole thing in the 70s during the Jesus music uh, movement. It's, it's not about religion, it's about a relationship. Well, I beg to differ. It's also about a religion, a pure religion, an undefiled religion, not a pharisaical religion, of course. So what is dispensational theology? Dr. Paul ends, and I actually brought my probably my third copy of this book over the years. I um, had to buy it used from, from uh, I thought this was interesting, Mo- the Moody Handbook of Theology by Dr. Paul Enns. He's still alive, by the way. He's in his 90s. Um, in the pink, it says author's bias, and she has this like outlined. But author's biased, typically you buy a book because you want the perspective of the author. Every book is like that. In fact, the 66 books by the over 40 authors, or the 40 um, penners, should I say, of the what we call the Bible in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it has an author, and his perspective is the bias that we want. Its author is God. Its author is the Lord Jesus Christ, and we want his bias. Every book is based upon a bias. Uh, in the case of these theologies, yes, were these, you know, did the dispensational teachers call their system a theology, or were they just labeled by those? No, they called it. They're theologians. They call themselves theologians. Yeah, but certainly. And they call this a theology. Yes, uh, from the Greek theos. Theos means God, and logos means the word, or the study, or uh, uh, logia. Uh, Logos means word, but logia means the study of. So the study of God, and they certainly use that as far as for Greek, and they and they call it a theology. Yeah. Same with Calvinists. Calvinists, as far as covenant theology or Calvinistic theology, they would call it a theology. Yeah, and they call themselves theologians. And in fact, I call all of you theologians, because if you're interested in the Lord Jesus Christ, which you should be, the study of God should be your first and most important priority. And so, and that's the problem with the church today. Even though I say, like, you know, you bring up the word theology and people cringe. But the truth of the matter is, if you're not theologians, you're not growing in grace or you're not str- uh, strengthening yourself in faith. You, the study of God must be your heart. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, you know, and uh, 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your everything. Uvakol uh, modeka in Hebrew, with all your everything. Um, and so that should be your first and most important priority, um, to look upon Jesus Christ always, not just here, but as you're walking down the street, as you're setting a net, as you're um, washing windows, cooking a meal, eating a meal, lying, rising up it in the morning, because Deuteronomy 6 mentions those things, as you rise up in the morning, as you sit down in the uh, in the day when you rest, as you Put your hands to labor as you toil, as frontlets for your eyes and uh, bound upon your hand as you sit down at night, uh, set yourself down, lay yourself down at night. Everything should be about God. 
you should be a theologian. Doesn't necessarily you need, uh, and and you're a theologian. I didn't say that you're an academic. I don't mean that you need to go to seminary. You don't need to go to Bible college. If the Lord has you go do those things, you know, then by all means do it. But the study of God, the reading of His Word, the meditations upon the truth of Christ when you read His Word, that's really what theology is and should be. But Paul then says this about dispensational theology on page 553 of this book right here. And the emphasis is in the original uh, from the handout I provided for you. A dispensational theology is, quote, a system of interpretation that seeks to establish a unity in the scriptures through its central focus on the grace of God. Although dispensationalists recognize differing stewardships of, or dispensations, whereby man was put under a trust by the Lord, they teach that response to God's revelation in each dispensation is by faith. Salvation is always by grace through faith. Dispensationalists arrive at their system of interpretation through two primary principles. One, maintaining a consistently literal method of interpretation, and two, maintaining a distinction between Israel and the church. End quote. So that, that's what he has to say about that, and you can dissect that however you want. But um, pretty much um, there are misunderstandings concerning dispensationalism, uh, which I'll point out in, in just a moment. But it, dispensation, um, you know, from the word dispense in English, they're calling really periods of time or economies of time. It comes from... Uh, Ephesians, one of the places it comes from, and this is why we read Ephesians chapter 1, is uh, in verse 10 where it says that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth even in him. The uh, English Standard Version uses the word plan, but it is the Greek word here, uh, oikonomia. Hoikonomia, or hoikonomia is actually how I pronounce it in Greek. Hoikonomia, meaning, you know, the English word where we get the word economy from really comes from hoikonomia. You, you hear the similarities right there in the words? That's where you get the word economy from. But it's translated dispensation. It means to dispense, and that's what an economy does. Uh, it dispenses, it distributes, it provides for a stewardship or an ownership of property or something of value and dispenses it in order, order to benefit the system or persons or whatever. That's really what this word is all about, um, an, an administration. And uh, this is what dispensational theology does, is it takes that word which is provided for you here in the handout, Luke 16, verses 2, 3, 4. Most, many of you are familiar with that parable that the Lord tells of the uh, good, you know, the, the uh, stewards and the uh, parable of the talents. Though, um, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 17 uses this, um, uses this word, uh, hoikonomia, uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 2, and verse 9 of Ephesians 3 also uses it. And Colossians 1, verse 25. Some places it's translated in the Old King James Version, stewardship. 
And like I said, in the English Standard Version, it's plan. Well, this is God's plan. This is what he has dispensed. Um, but that's where it comes from, its etymology, its origin. Did you have something, Brother Mike? Well, I was just thinking about it, and I said, it's only implied in dispensational uh, theology that God is sovereign. Right. They, uh, uh, well, it's um, actually from the theo- some of the mod- more modern theologians, they do use the word sovereign. Um, for the most part, for the most part, for anybody that believes in dispensational theology, and by the way, dispensational theology is the most common theology in America, and you'll see why in just a minute. Um, it's, it seems to be the most common or most prevalent, more so than Reformed theology, um, and there are, uh, I believe the reasons will be apparent in just a minute when we look at the fundamental features of it. Uh, the historical development of dispensational theology and its ancient developments, you had Justin Martyr, uh, who lived from 110 A.D. to 165 A.D., one of the early church fathers. Um, he believed that there were periods of time or dispensations where the God was working in a, uh, a pre-circumcision, pre-Sabbath period of time, which was before Abraham a post-circumcision, pre-Sabbath period of time, because the Sabbath wasn't necessarily ordained. The scriptures hadn't been written. Even Genesis had not been written until Moses, Jesus says so, um, or Jesus alluded to it, and that's we draw that conclusion. Um, and he gave uh, authorship and authenticated the whole of the law, uh, the first five books of the Bible, to Moses having penned it. But... Um, and then after Moses, a post-circumcision, post-Sabbath type arrangement. He acknowledged, he, he acknowledged the differing economies or stewardships as far as God dividing it up. Th- this is what he, what he uh, um, uh, Justin Martyr, came up with. And there were other early church fathers, and we won't go into every one of them. Irenaeus, uh, who lived 130 to 200 A.D., uh, Clement of Alexandria, who lived 150 to 220 A.D., uh, Augustine, who lived 354 to 430 A.D., and uh, Charles Caldwell, um, and my last name's Cardwell, so there's no relation. Um, Caldwell Ryrie says this quote: "It is not suggested, nor should it be inferred, that these early church fathers were dispensationalists in the modern sense of the word." But it is true that some of them enunciated principles which later developed into dispensationalism, and it may be rightly said that they held to primitive or early dispensational concepts, end quote. And this is from his uh, book, uh, Charles Ryrie's book, Dispensationalism Today, uh, on Moody Press, published in 1965. Uh, the modern developments were was a guy named uh, Pierre Poiret, I believe that's how you, Poiret is how you pronounce his name, but he was a French uh, philosopher and uh, theologian, born in 1646, died in 1719. Um, He arranged dispensations, and he called like, uh, he he presented them in such as, like in the growing of a man, you know, or birth of a child, infancy, toddler, and he presented them somewhat like that. A man named John Edwards, who was somewhat of a contemporary, of, or well, he was a contemporary, 
Um, he arranged them in somewhat of a similar fashion. 16, he was born in 1637, died in 1716. Uh, interestingly, many people didn't know this, Isaac Watts was uh, had a form of dispensationalism. Uh, it, it wasn't uh, laid out the same as what we know in modern dispensationalism, but he, uh, who was born in 1674 and died in 1748, many of his hymns we sing today. Uh, you know, he penned over 700 hymns, and uh, his pastor was Philip Doddridge. He was a Congregationalist uh, minister who studied Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Well, you know, he was a Congregationalist hymn writer, um, but um, uh, Isaac Watts, as far as we know, never preached, and his pastor was Philip Doddridge. But he, uh, you know, he had a working knowledge of Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, as most most students did in those days. Uh, John Nelson Darby, J. N. Darby, um, born in eighteen hundred eighteen eighty two. He is um, he was an Anglican minister who formed what is known as the Plymouth Brethren. And this is where modern dispensationalism gets its roots. And I provided in the handout there uh, John, John Nelson Darby's um, uh, layout of seven dispensation. The paradisical state to the, uh, to the flood is the first dispensation. And then from uh, the dispensation of the days of Noah to Abraham, the third dispensation is from Abraham to the nation of Israel. And under Israel, you had um, uh, they were under the Mosaic law, under the priesthood, and under the kings in that fourth dispensation. Then in the fifth dispensation would be the, the time of the Gentiles, the dispensation or period of the Gentiles. That's, that would be Israel's captivity after uh, through Babel, uh, through Assyria, the Northern Kingdom take cap, taken captive through Assyria in what is it seven twenty uh, seven seven oh something seven oh three seven oh two BC, and then uh, uh, five twenty six BC for the Southern Kingdom being taken captive, Southern Kingdom of Judah taken captive by Babylon, and now through the reigning of these kings, uh, Babylon. Uh, the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and then the Roman Empire that would be called the quote-unquote time of the Gentiles, then the Lord Jesus coming, this, uh, the time of the Spirit. And then, uh, and then he presents that after the return of Christ, the millennium. That's John Nelson Darby, and, and that pretty much set up with the Plymouth Brethren um, the uh, what what would be more popularly known is through Cyrus uh, Ingersoll Schofield, you know, the Schofield Bible, where the Schofield Bible came from. Born in 1843, died in 1921. Cyrus Ingerson, Ingersoll, Ingerson, uh, Cyrus Ingerson Schofield. I, uh, we used to have a air compressor was made by Ingersoll Rand. That's why I always get his name mis- mixed up. I, uh, and for some reason, every time I see his name written out, because he's known by C.I. Schofield, every time I th- see his name written out, I think of Briggs and Stratton, Ingersoll Rand. I think of compressors. Born in 1843, died in 1921. And this is what is most popular, uh, especially because of the Schofield Reference Bible that had come out. 
um, and used quite prevalently in Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, a man innocent from creation to expulsion from Eden, first dispensation, the second dispensation, man under conscience from Eden to the flood, man in authority over the earth um, from Noah to Abraham, man from under promise from Abraham to Moses because of the promises made to Abraham, uh, un- some uh, uh, conditional promises and many unconditional promises. Man under law from Moses to Christ and man under grace from the death of Christ to the rapture of the church and man under personal reign of Christ in the millennial reign. Uh, That would be the millennial reign of Christ, the quote unquote thousand years, which we covered under eschatology. Uh, Schofield was a lawyer and a Bible minister, and he states this from his uh, book, Rightly Dividing the Word of Truth, which was published in 1896. He says this quote, These periods are marked off in Scripture by some change in God's method of dealing with mankind, or a portion of mankind, in respect to the two questions of sin and of man's responsibility. Each of the dispensations may be regarded as a new test of the natural man, and each ends in judgment, marking his utter failure in every dispensation." Now, I don't have actually really anything, any problem with what Schofield said there. And by that, it could be taken out of this context. This quote could be taken out of this context, which I could readily see, where he mentions these two questions, sin and man's responsibility, that could somewhat lead to a focus on man's work as opposed to God's. And it has been taken that way by many dispensationalists. I, I, you know, I just have to call it as I see it, because I know a lot of them, and they're friends of mine. But that's how they really see it. And they put the ball in their court, so to speak, as opposed to the truth of the grace of God, uh, and in fact, the grace of a sovereign God, um, that Christ is king. Um, but I, I, through the whole book, which I haven't read for years, but through the whole book, I don't think that uh, Schofield meant it that way originally. I don't think he did. Uh, at least I hope he didn't. But um, that's how it could be taken. The modern theologians uh, were uh, that were influenced by uh, the people that are more well-known in dispensational circles, the people who are dispensationalists today, um, well-known dispensationalists today, uh, are have studied from or even under Lewis Berry Schaefer, who was born in 1871, died in 1952. He was uh, uh, he was a student of C.I. Schofield, and then Schaefer's work as a theologian and writing a dispensational systematic theology. Um, his two students were John F. Wolverd, uh, di- uh, born in 1910, died in 2002, and then Charles Caldwell Ryrie whose work is probably the definitive work, his systematic theology is the definitive work um, on dispensationalism that's used mostly today. Uh, born in 1925 to 2016. Although many of the other you know, p- dispensational pastors are, um, you know, read other works as well. And there are other folks out there. There's, uh, let's see, uh, Wayne Grudem, I believe, and, and others who wrote these systematic theologies. John MacArthur is a 
He calls himself, and I mentioned this in the end time when we looked at eschatology uh, a couple weeks ago, John MacArthur is what he calls himself a leaky dispensationalist. And we'll actually cover progressive, you know, get an overview of progressive uh, dispensationalism in a moment, uh, which... uh, which doesn't buy into the whole classical dispensationalism that we know. The fundamental features of dispensational theology are, first of all, this is why I believe it is so popular, it's, it is believed on by both Calvinists and Arminians. That's why it is so popular uh, among, as far as the theology, because you could be Calvinistic, as John MacArthur is, and, and uh, adopt it. Uh, you can be kind of mid-Calvin, mid-Arminian, like uh, some of the others. Of, uh, who's that fellow down there? Uh, David Jeremiah. He's a dispensationalist. He's kind of in between, leaning a little bit more Calvinistically than Arminian. And then you got outright Arminians. And if you and we won't cover Arminian and Calvinistic theology because we covered it a little bit last week, just a little bit Calvinism. And it's covered, as I provided the note for you there, uh, August 29th and, and uh, September, 20th, September 5th, uh, when we looked at the Remonstrance, uh, parts 3 and 4 of the Reformation. The basic distinctives, I only covered five, and there are more than this. This is just general. One, the number of dispensations is not as important as recognizing there are, uh, that there are actually dispensations. Typically, uh, there are seven, and and most of them you'll find that they put out seven because seven is the number of completion uh, in the Bible. We we recognize that. Uh, second, uh, item B, item small letter B, emphasis upon grace in the present economy without denying grace during the dispensation of law. They do emphasize grace in the period of the church. But they do, dispensationalists, true dispensationalists, recognize that God's grace was working in the other dispensations as well. True dispensationalists, true students of the scriptures, and true students of dispensational theology believe that. Um, that uh, but there are other people that are, you know, that are kind of like, uh, what would we call that? Uh, Monday morning quarterbacks, wheelchair generals that are kind of the, they, they know only enough to be very dangerous <laughs> to themselves. They, they, they have a very superficial understanding of any theology at all. And what they do know, which, you know, they've heard their pastors speak of just a little bit. Well, that's what my pastor believes, so this is what I believe too. But they're only parroting a few things that their pastor heard, not necessarily everything that their pastor has studied or believed. And so uh, they, there's, sometimes there's a tendency to deny grace in the, other, in the other areas. No, this is a time of grace. The other time was a time of works. No, if you read Galatians, the book of Galatians, the letter of, of Galatians and Romans, and, well, basically the whole New Testament, you'd understand that while well, it was being written, that was the Old Testament they were talking about. And so grace was evident there. The law could not bring anyone to Christ, ever. Uh, so, so grace was evident. Salvation, according to Charles Ryrie from Dispensationalism Today, um, and the emphasis 
that I provided for you in the handout is in the original quote. The basis of salvation in every age is the death of Christ. The requirements for salvation in every age is faith. The object of faith in every age is God. The content of faith changes in the various dispensations, end quote. The reason I provided that quote, because there are some, and it's those that haven't really studied dispensational theology that will suggest that, well, dispensationalists only believe in salvation by grace through faith during this period. Well, that's not true. Um, and coming, and like I said, I'm not a dispensationalist, but I want to come to the defense of my dispensational brothers. It's not true. Uh, they do believe that 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 even though Christ, uh, the promises made to Abraham, even the unconditional promises made to Abraham in Genesis, uh, they uh, that he was saved by grace through faith in Christ, even though Christ Jesus' name wasn't mentioned then. Because Romans 3 tells us that, you know, uh, for sins past, in Romans 3 verse 25, they're justified. Which means that his eternal sacrifice not only went forward to all your sins, past, present, and future, it covered all those for those who are waiting for the promise of God's salvation since the garden in Genesis 3.15, right after man's sin. And the pronouncement that there will be a virgin birth, the seed of a woman. Um, number four, the fourth point would be the church and Israel are two distinct entities with two distinct dispensational destinies. I don't personally believe that. That's why I'm not a dispensationalist, but I understand where they're coming from. I know the scriptures that they present in this, that they say, well, the promises are literal. I said, well, did you read that literal promise that it was fulfilled in Solomon? One of the promises is is that the promise that was given for Israel to, for the land is that it would go to the river, the great river in Egypt, which is the Nile, and to the uh, and to the river Euphrates. Well, that was never fulfilled, so Jesus must fulfill it. Technically, it was fulfilled because if you take the word hoikonomia, economy. Solomon's influence stretched to the Euphrates, to Nineveh, and it stretched down to Egypt, to the Nile River. Though he didn't possess that land, his Greek word, hoikonomia, his economy and influence and even his rulership extended to those areas. So in one sense, it was literally fulfilled in Solomon's day. Then they take me to someplace else. Well, did you see this? Okay, I guess we, I mean, I'm not meaning to argue about it. I just mentioned that let's read the scriptures rather than the theology book. Since the futures of the church, uh, then number five, since the futures of the church in Israel differ, and this is kind of like maybe a subheading to D anyway. Since the futures of the church in Israel differ, prophecy must be interpreted and understood with this in mind. That's what they say. And as I mentioned, when we looked at eschatology, and they said, well, you got to, you know, read these prophecies literally, and then they allegorize it. Remember that John in like Revelation chapter four. Well, John represents the church, and he when he's called up and he's taken into heaven in Revelation four. Well, that's the church being raptured before the tribulation time. I thought you just told me you got to interpret it literally. Uh, John went there. I, I'm part of the church. I didn't go there. I haven't seen it. So. Well, but let me let me take you to this. 
So there's some difficulties, as I mentioned. But I understand where they're coming from, and it doesn't mean that they're not saved, and I don't love them. And hopefully they love me, even though you know I'm not altogether on board with some of the things they're seeing. But I understand where they're coming from, and that's where we should be. As we see history and see these theologies, when we understand where they're coming from, maybe we can minister to them a little bit more effectively. Um, there is an extreme dispensationalism, and from what, I under, uh, from what I understand, yeah, easy for me. From what I understand, it's here on the peninsula. And in fact, uh, some of you know a uh, fellow who attends the church uh, now somewhat regularly when he's not in Wisconsin, uh, Ray Wigdahl. He's a dispensationalist, and he left the church in Homer and left uh, another church. He was, anyway, he ended up our way, but he was attending, you know, Wednesday night Bible studies here, or Wednesday night prayer meetings here for, uh, since I've been here for the last four years. But um, he was mentioning that this is becoming prevalent in several churches down here. It's called Bullingerism. Uh, it's a s- extreme dispensationalism, also known uh, as hyper-dispensationalism, and also known as ultra-dispensationalism, but be careful there because actually hyper-dispensationalism and ultra-dispensationalism are two separate sects of extreme dispensationalism, and those who are ultra aren't altogether the, with the guys that are hyper, and neither of them will call themselves hyper or ultra. It's like the, it, when the Puritans were first called Puritans, it was a dirty name from Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> the Queen Elizabeth II, she said, or first, Queen Elizabeth I, the Puritan, you know, you those Puritans. It's nonconformists. It's also known as the Grace Movement Grace movement dispensationalism, which is what you'll more than likely hear from some of those folks that are uh, south of us. But it was named after an Anglican clergyman, Ethelbert. He goes by E.W. Bullwinger, or went by E.W. Bullwinger, but I I just couldn't resist putting his full first name on there. Ethelbert. Who wouldn't like a handle like that? That is some kind of nomenclature. I'll tell you that. Ethelbert. I like that one. I wish my mom called me Ethelbert. Instead, she called me John Cardwell. Had to put my last name in there. John Cardwell. He was born in 1837 and died in 1913. He had had some interesting things about him. uh, One of the, the, the main marks concerning Bullwinger is that he didn't believe the church started on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, like classical dispensationalists believe, or even Reformed theologians believe that the Holy Spirit now has the permanent indwelling and the guarantee, the pledge, the the earnest of our inheritance. This is the guarantee that now we're filled with the Holy Spirit. This is why we know Jesus is coming back for us. Well, that didn't start then. He starts it after Acts 28 or somewhere in there, Acts chapter 9, at the salvation of Paul, uh, or Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul, or Acts 13, when Paul and Barnabas were sent out to the Gentiles. Um, There are others even there that might say, no, it happened in Corinth when it says, I no longer go to the the Jews, you know, when he was out of the synagogue, and he, he says, I, you know, kick off the dust of my feet against you, and I'm going to the from now on, I go to the Gentiles. So some people even mark it there in the extreme. 
um, there are several idiosyncrasies that he has. And although he didn't say so, some of his followers, uh, even today's followers, believe in nihilism or annihilism. Uh, in other words, for the judgment, there is not an eternal torment. You just have a soul sleep. Uh, but Bullwinger never ever openly came to that conclusion. He believed in gematria. Gematria is the study of numbers. Uh, I believe that there are significance in numbers, but gamatria or gematria, however it's pronounced, um, that's in even Jewish mysticism, Kabbalism, Kabbalistic Jews who uh, try to find uh, prophetic meaning in the numbers. Um, that's uh, gematria or gamatria. But there's bridging, incons- bridging the inconsistencies. This is where John MacArthur, Phil Johnson, that camp would come from. They call it progressive dispensationalism. It was espoused by, oh, here's a typo. I just see it here. Craig A. Blazing. That was, that, the date's there, 1926 to 2014. That's not correct. He was born, he's still around. He's born in 1949. He's in his 70s. And Daryl L. Bach, that's a, scratch that out. He was born in 1953. Sorry about that typo. Um, I don't know. I was cutting and pasting, and apparently I, I overlooked that. It can, it, progressive dispensationalism contains four noteworthy elements. And uh, from their book, Dispensationalism, Israel and the Church, uh, published in 1992, uh, this is what they bring about. And this is, this is kind of where many um, uh, progressive dispensationalists are. Zola Levitt was one of them. He uh, uh, came around before he passed away. Anyway, now that he passed away, I guess he's a Reformed theologian. I'm just kidding. Uh, God's, God's historical plan for his theocratic kingdom, quote, does not entail separate programs for the church in Israel that are somehow ultimately unified only in the display of God's glory or in eternity, end quote. In other words, they're saying that there is a unity in the church in Israel. They're not just separate and distinct. This progressive dispensationalism recognizes that. Uh, Christ's kingdom and its offer through the Lord Jesus Christ arrived at his first coming, and is offered through the truth of, you know, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, it's right now, readily available. You know, he taught, told that to his disciples. He preached that word. Um, so uh, progressive dispensationalists believe that. And like many Puritans of old and Reformed theologians, many progressive dispensationalists understand a quote, and we talked about this, already not yet. Christ Jesus is reigning upon the throne in heaven, but it's not yet completely fulfilled until his return. And, you know, I certainly believe, have believed that for years, and progressive dispensationalism offers that. Um, uh, he will, uh, the rule of Christ upon the throne of David is going on uh, right now. Uh, it is an eternal spiritual truth. Uh, but it isn't completely fulfilled until the return of Christ. And then finally, Old Testament prophecies contain both spiritual and material elements. So the whole idea of literal um, has been softened because of things that I had brought out. Remember Deuteronomy 10 that says, God commands you, you must be circumcised of heart. 
How do you do that? And God says later on in Deuteronomy 32 or 31, he says later on, I will circumcise your heart. He's not talking about a literal circumcision of heart. He's talking about a spiritual, metaphorical, allegorical circumcision of heart. Just as Jesus talking to Nicodemus, you must be born from above. Well, can I, must, can, do I have to go into my mother's womb to be born again? No. <laughs> it's talking about a spiritual truth, an eternal truth. So I've already taken it beyond the pale, or at least right up to the time. Any questions or comments? I might not answer them. I may have to answer them next week because we've kind of run out of time. But uh, I, I, I'm I'm try. I think you'll find that when we get into the socialist theologies, because they're clearly wrong, uh, when and that's what's going on in postmodernism. It'll be a little bit more exciting to you. Trying to make just standard regular theology exciting is is tough because it's very academic and. Uh, and, uh, you know, most of us spent all our lives trying to get out of school. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> let's pray. Our most blessed and gracious Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name and for his sake, we thank you, Lord, for the blessed truths that you brought us today. And, and we ask you, Father, that you'll uh, be glorified through the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And um, we look forward to the day when all those things will be put together and we'll see, ah, Oh, that's how it is. That's what it means. Okay. We thank you, Lord. And uh, thank you for your mercy and your grace and your amazing love. In Jesus' name and for his sake, we do pray. Amen.